Hello and welcome to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. I'm your host, Art, and happy Easter, everyone, and spring has sprung. Allergy season is now in full swing, and since COVID season is also in full swing, I'm a little paranoid, but all is well so far, and I hope all is well with you. Got a great episode ahead. I'll be talking with Gina Delfonso about um, Charles Dickens's book, The Life of Our Lord, and some other things Dickens-related. Think of this as the second part of an Easter episode that's about a week late. <laughs> and uh, come on in and grab your cup of Easter eggnog. That is a thing, and I'm afraid to try it. Since uh, Sunday was Easter, I was thinking about some of the traditions we have and there's a lot about what we do that I have no idea as to why, why we do it. You know, things like hiding Easter eggs and where did the Easter idea of the Easter bunny come from? And, and why is chocolate such a big deal at Easter time? Well, I mean, besides that it's good and any excuse I can get to have chocolate, I'm on board with that. Uh, and so I just realized there's a lot I don't know about the traditions behind what we do. And like I said, I've been looking for meaningful ways of celebrating Easter. So that's something I might want to look into on my own. If you have any good resources on that, let me know. Let's do a quick Christmas thing real fast. And then we'll uh, switch our attention over to Easter. The next book for our Cozy Christmas Book Corner that I'd want to recommend and that I'll be talking about over the next couple of episodes is a book called Christmas, A Biography by Judith Flanders. I have not read this book yet, but I have read her book, uh, The Victorian City, as well as the excellent book, The Invention of Murder. And these are nonfiction books, and The Invention of Murder is a look at murder in the 19th century, basically, in its history and development. It's the, especially the way the uh, the Victorians were obsessed with it and, and scandalized by it and wrote about it. It's really, a, really an interesting book. So then I saw that she had written a, a biography of Christmas. And so I had I had to read that. And, and like I said, I haven't read it. So I'm going to be starting that over uh, this week and, and next. And so in, in the next episode, I'll have some thoughts about that. And if you want to read along with me, um, I'll have a link in the show notes as to where you can get her book. But what is this book about? Here's what uh, the book blurb says. Christmas has been all things to all people. A religious festival, a family celebration, a time of eating and drinking. Yet the origins of the customs which characterize the festive season are wreathed in myth. When did turkeys become the plate du jour? Is the commercialization of Christmas a recent phenomenon? Or has the emphasis always been on spending? Just who is, or was, Santa Claus? And for how long have we been exchanging presents of underwear and socks? Food, drink, and nostalgia for Christmas's past seem to be almost as old as the holiday itself, far more central to the story of Christmas than religious worship. Thirty years after the first recorded Christmas, in the fourth century, the Archbishop of Constantinople was already warning that too many people were spending the day not in worship, but dancing and eating to excess. By 1616, the playwright Ben Jonson was nostalgically recalling the Christmases of yesteryear, confident that they had been better then. In Christmas, a biography, acclaimed social historian and best-selling author 
Judith Flanders casts a sharp and revealing eye on the myths, legends, and history of the season, from the origins of the holiday in the Roman Empire to the emergence of Christmas trees in Central Europe, to what might just possibly be the first appearance of Santa Claus in Switzerland to draw a picture of the season as it has never been seen before. So if you have read this book, I'd love to hear what you think about it. Um, you can send me an email uh, or reach out to me in my social medias. It sounds extremely fascinating. And like I said, I've enjoyed the other two books of hers I've read. Now, it turns out she's also a mystery writer, which I'm not sure I knew that. And so she's written a series and they're called the Sam Clare Mysteries. The first one is, is A Murder of Magpies. And so I'm going to check out those mysteries as well because... Uh, I, I love a good mystery. Check that book out and see if that might be something you'd be interested in reading or giving as a gift to those book lovers on your Christmas list. All right, now uh, I'm excited to get to the interview with Gina Delfonso. Uh, we're going to talk about The Life of Our Lord by Charles Dickens, as well as some of his other works that reflect on resurrection and redemption. Today I am. Welcoming back to the show, Gina D'Alfonso. She's the creator of the Dickens blog and editor of the book, The Gospel in Dickens. Uh, so welcome back to the Cozy Christmas Podcast, Gina. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. I think you have the distinction of being the first repeat guest. So Oh, I'm honored. So, yeah. <laughs> it has nothing to do with your Dickens connection, I, I swear. <laughs> But like like you said, we're a couple of uh, uh, fellow learners of of in, of studying of Dickens, and it's a subject I enjoy talking about. So, all right, well, it's been uh, you were on last in December, and it's been quite a year since then. Yes. <laughs> uh, how, how are things been going for you uh, these last few months? Things are going okay. Um, we're just you know do, doing uh, doing a lot of work and stuff from home, um, doing uh, Zoom dance classes, doing a lot of things on Zoom and <laughs> looking forward to um, when we'll all be able to be in person again. But yeah. We had our, all of our COVID numbers had dropped in Iowa here, yeah. but, but then they started to go back up a little bit. It's not been too drastic, but they have kind of risen a bit too. We're, we're just hoping that by the time my son's graduation comes, we can still go to it. <laughs> oh, when is that? Uh, that'll be in May, uh, like oh, okay. May 23rd or so. Uh, oh. Anyway, so he, he's graduating high school and looking for college and all that. So yeah. uh, we're hoping he can actually have an in-person graduation this year. Oh, so. here's hoping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, like I said, um, I appreciate you coming on and we're going to we're going to be talking today about um, the life of our Lord uh, by Charles Dickens. And I'm, I'm hoping to sneak in some conversation about uh, A Tale of Two Cities as well. I'm but, always up for that. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, we might end up talking more about that one. <laughs> but I've been reading some selections from The Life of Our Lord on the last couple of uh, episodes, and uh, it, it's such an interesting little book. So I, I guess I want to start off and uh, to ask, are you familiar with it? And, and uh, when was when did you first come across it? I am familiar with it. Um I first came across it, oh, this was a long time ago. I may have still been in my teens or 
possibly early 20s, I'm not sure. But I remember um, coming across a copy in my uh, church bookstore at the time, a, a very nice uh, hardcover copy. It's the one I still have. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's right here. And um, it, it has, uh, I, I forget who published it, but it has a very nice um, cover, illustrations, all that. And uh, I was already into Dickens at that time, not as much mm-hmm. as I am now, but pretty much into him. And, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, this would be a really cool thing to have. So I bought it and uh, I've, I've had the same copy ever since. Let me go grab mine real quick. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I've got, I've got this edition. Oh yeah. That's really nice. I, I've seen that edition before. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is a visual thing. So sorry to all the. <laughs> yes, I know. We're, uh, we're, we're showing these gorgeous books. Yeah, so you're the right. only ones who can see them. Right. Uh, yeah. I haven't gotten brave yet to put a vi- to put the videos online, <laughs> just, just the audio. <laughs> uh, but I've got the one that uh, has an introduction by, um, Gerald Dickens. Mm, nice. And then I, I got it autographed by him at one of uh, his performances of Chris, of A Christmas Carol in Omaha. So. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, this, this is mine here. Uh, again, mm, we're being visual. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this is, it looks like I have a Thomas Nelson edition from 91. So okay. if I got that when it was sort of, when it was new or even sort of new, I would have been around maybe 16, 17, mm-hmm. thereabouts. So yeah, um, there's there's some very nice additions to this out there. I guess it's often described as a children's story. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and he wrote it for his children, if I remember right. Yes, that's right. I first read it just a few years ago. It was right after I, I got it, had gotten it for Christmas and, and got it um, autographed by Gerald Dickens and... Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had, but I hadn't ever read it. So I, I read it just a couple of years ago and, um, uh, you know, I can, I can tell it's, it's not as deep as some of his other writing, but you really get his message. He's trying to tell his kids. Mm-hmm. I did cover the history about it, um, in, in a couple episodes ago, but, um, basically this was written for his children and not intended for publication mm-hmm. and they didn't find it until I think it was the early thirties. So this is. This is like every book lover's dream that they find, yeah. you know, <laughs> we found yeah. unpublished material. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I've been reading this and um, uh, and reading some selections on the podcast here. And uh, so I just want to uh, talk a little bit about some of the uh, the passages from that. But uh, do, I don't. Do you catch his his message here that he wants us to know in the in the book? Yeah, you do. It, it's it's such an interesting book. Um, as you say, it's simple, and yet uh, a, a fan of Dickens or, or somebody who studies him seriously or somebody who's interested in Dickens and religion can like spend a long time sort of pouring out of the over this book and trying to like parse out some of the things he's saying. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I, I want to say very much a man of his time in the way he talked about Jesus as, as, and you, you see him emphasizing sort of the human over the divine in Mm -hmm. some ways. And like at the start, he sort of seems like he's going to like really emphasize the human, maybe almost at the expense of the divine, because he's, he's sort of, he's sort of like emphasizing the moral message. He's instead of like, 
going into the straight salvation message. He's sort of saying, you know, he was such a good and kind man. And so you're, you're sort of sitting here like, okay, Dickens, where are you going with this? But mm-hmm. as you go along, he sort of, you see him following the biblical record very closely, you know, adapting mm-hmm. and, and paraphrasing and, 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 uh, doing various things with it, but still following it really closely. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't shy away from the miracles. Uh, like he he's not some Thomas Jefferson like excising those passages. Right. And he doesn't shy away from the title "Son of God." And and uh, by the time you get like to the crucifixion and the resurrection, it almost seems like he's sort of sneaked up on the divine aspect. If you know what I mean. I, yeah. I was just reading through it again to, to prepare for this podcast. Um, and, uh, it, 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 that really struck me this time, just that he doesn't, he doesn't talk about Jesus, like in the same way we might today in a lot of ways, um, just, he, he, he really sort of brings his own biases, his own emphases to it. And, but at the same time, he's not getting rid of the divine element. He's sort of incorporating it in there, maybe more stealthily than we might expect, but mm-hmm. it's still there. So that I, I found all that very interesting. Yeah, that's that was my impression too, uh, that there were a few times where I was reading and I thought, well, I think he, he missed a miracle in there. Wasn't there <laughs> yeah. another miracle there or, or something? But then other times, you know, he'll, he'll slip it in. I guess somehow he manages to talk about it but not necessarily like you said it's stealthy he doesn't necessarily beat you over the head yeah with the with the miracle aspect uh but the the message you know i i get from this is that he really is emphasizing the um y- you know the work part of it the that if you have faith then i guess it's like in the uh, book of james in in the bible that james says faith without works is dead i think that's something dickens would really be drawn to because yeah. you know he's talking about showing the care and love and concern to others and mm-hmm. and having that worked out in your in your life that it's not just enough to say I, I'm believing this but that my belief is making me go out and do something about it mm-hmm. yeah and uh, you know that's I mean you, you can pick up any book up Dickens wrote and you're gonna catch his you know his his desire for people to be aware of the plight of the poor and yes uh to uh you know not overlook them and not to neglect them i i think that's probably a theme in just about every one of his writings yes uh, and it's very yeah. strong in here he he's, oh, yeah. he's really into um how jesus helped the poor how how he put them first how he drew his disciples from from among the poor just and, mm-hmm. and he hammers that theme again and again yeah, I wanted to uh, go ahead and read some a couple of selections here. We can talk a little bit about it. So uh, I found them all, all, all in this handy dandy book here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but if if uh, if you guys got uh, Gina's book, uh, she has selections in here from the life of our Lord. But uh, here the opening. Uh, I, I really love his opening. Is it's just. You know, especially knowing it's written for his children and it's not he's not thinking about his publication. He's not thinking about his, you know, his uh, his 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 public, his fans. He's just writing to his kids. But it says, my dear children, I am very anxious that you should know something about the history of Jesus Christ for everybody ought to know about him. 
No one ever lived who was so good, so kind, so gentle, and so sorry for all people who did wrong or were in any way ill or miserable as he was. Uh, and as he is now in heaven, where we hope to go and all to meet each other after we are dead and there be happy always together, you never can think what a good place heaven is without knowing who he was and what he did. Uh, and so that's, the, again, the opening of, of the life of our Lord. And, and I just, I love that. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just, I guess as a father, that resonates to me, you know, that he, he has his faith and he wants to pass that on uh, to his children. Yes, it's, it's very heartfelt. And it, it um, I mean, you could see him putting all the things that are really important to him about Christ and about his faith right up front there. And mm -hmm. as you said, as you said earlier, there's no doubt about what he wants his message to be and how he wants to share it. Mm -hmm. When I was reading uh, the closing paragraphs of of this, I'm like, okay, Dickens, you're hitting us over the head with this big time. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're not being subtle at all here. <laughs> uh, but I don't think he's ever been accused of being subtle. So <laughs> no, generally not. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One section here, um, um, I think it's chapter three. He says this about or forming the the disciples. It says that there might be some good men to go about with him, teaching the people. Jesus Christ chose 12 poor men to be his companions. Uh, these 12 are called the apostles or disciples, and he chose them from among poor men in order that the poor might know, always after that, in all years to come, that heaven was made for them as well as for the rich, and that God makes no difference between those who wear good clothes and those who go barefoot and in rags. Uh, the most miserable, the most ugly, deformed, wretched creatures that live will be bright angels in heaven if they are good here on earth. Uh, and, and that's just really interesting, uh, mm -hmm. those last few lines, that you, you really get some insight into his his faith. and Or, or potentially, uh, as your footnote here says, that that, that may be owed more to his uh, Victorian culture than maybe his own his own theology. Right. The whole angel people will become angels. Um, mm -hmm. I think that was, again, that that's a little bit of his Victorianism peeking through, <laughs> but you, but yeah. as, as you were saying, you also do get the emphasis on, on the poor and, um, and him put really putting his finger on um, the, you know, the, the earth shaking idea that God makes no difference between the poor and the rich and um, mm -hmm. and everybody is equal in his sight and um, it is loved by him. So uh, again, you, you see him, you see him uh, latch onto this theme, which was so uh, fundamental to his thinking. Like I, I know uh, enough about, you know, first century Israel that that teaching would have been shocking, you know, that the rich mm -hmm. and poor, can are, are going are going to be together uh and then you know as, into the first century church they had trouble with the you know jews christian jews and christian gentiles you mean we're equal now that doesn't make you know that's not right uh that's <laughs> no. a shock uh, but i don't i don't know too much about uh i guess how the victorians would have viewed that uh would there have been that same level of of surprise uh, that's a good question. We know that that society was pretty stratified. Uh, yeah. We know that this is something that Dickens and, um, you know, other writers of his day as well and other reformers, but, but Dickens particularly is known for calling attention 
to um, the inequalities and for uh, calling on call, calling for change mm-hmm. and uh, really shining the spotlight on the lives of the poor and the needy and the sick and um, you know wanting better treatment for them. So I, I think he did see you know terrible injustice all around him and uh, and that it was very much a part of his culture. I know books like a Christmas Carol he wrote expressly to to be that uh, oh and I forget the phrase he uses I think it's something like he he wanted to send a, a thunderbolt or something to to really shake up the people mm-hmm. uh, uh, for that story uh, but it, it's it's inter- I I've, what I find interesting then about this is that again knowing it wasn't for publication you know this is maybe. Um, somewhat close to the real, to the real Dickens. I mean, he may still have been, you know, as he's writing to kids, putting on a, on a front or something, but, oh, I, I know I'm losing my train of thought where I was going with that. <laughs> but, uh, oh, oh, that's it. That it's not just, he's not doing that, uh, promoting those things just for publication. You know, he's, he's also teaching his children. I think you should live this way, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to be aware of the poor and I'm not doing it just to sell a story. I'm doing it to to teach you about about Jesus and about right. what I believe. Right, that's a good point. That's how that's a way that you can know that these things really were true to him and mattered to him. Is that um, in the privacy of his own home with his own family, he's still he's saying the exact same things to his children that he was always trying to say to his readers. In in this, uh, what I'll, I'll I'll say later in this episode, <laughs> uh, but I, I do talk a little bit about that at the end of of his of the life of our Lord. And, uh, you know, he, he pleads for people or, or for his kids to do good and to, you know, follow Christ's example. And, um, you know, I, I point out that, uh, you know, he wasn't perfect at it. We're not perfect at it. I don't know. Sometimes when you, when you deal with your own family, it can be a little, a little harder to be, to be kind, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, well, anyway, for those who know Dickens, you know, he, he wasn't perfect by any stretch, but, I just really appreciate his his challenge, you know, to 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 do good, to be good, to follow Christ's example of of uh, following those who are who are poor, those who are um, in need, and to do something about it if you can. I wanted to uh, finish out here this this other little paragraph you have, or, or from the the life of our Lord. It says, uh, "Never forget this when you are grown up." Uh, never be proud or unkind, my dears, to any poor man, woman, or child. If they are bad, think that they would have been better if they had kind friends and good homes and had been better taught. So always try to make them better by kind, persuading words, and always try to teach them and relieve them if you can. And when people speak ill of the poor and miserable, think how Jesus Christ went among them and taught them and thought them worthy of his care. And always pity them yourselves and think as well of them as you can. Uh, he was always merciful and tender because he did such good and taught people how to love God and how to hope to go to heaven after death. Uh, he was called our Savior. Uh, and I, I think, again, there it really sums up his his theology. Uh, again, it's a, it's a faith that's very much expressed as, as works. You know, not nece- even necessarily it's salvation by works but uh i don't know maybe i'm just reading into it but i 
Yeah, well, he does seem to verge on that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I think the part that I'm I I, I wonder about. Yeah. I guess from my point of view, I I see enough there too that, uh, like I had mentioned from uh, the the book of James, that real genuine faith will be expressed in works. Uh, you know, and that's that's my hope is that if we are claiming to be a Christian, claiming the name of Christ, that we don't act like jerks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh, it, it's it, it, Dickens is right when he points out about Christ that he, he did all these kind things and and good things, and we ought to follow that example. You know, this is and this is where I I come down to to, to think a lot about is. Where where is he on this? Is it more of a salvation by works or salvation by faith or some kind of mixture of the two, perhaps? Mm, yes, perhaps so. He he does put a lot of emphasis on you know being good, doing good works. Uh, at the same time, he also talks about how the wicked can be forgiven um, if they're sorry mm-hmm. for what they've done by by asking God for forgiveness. So he is not. <laughs> he he is not yeah. leaving that out, but he does put more emphasis on uh, good works than than we commonly do. So mm-hmm. um, he sort of has them. You, you might say he sort of has them side by side. In the book you have edited at the back, there's a couple of letters that um, Dickens included, or, mm-hmm. or that you included, mm-hmm. uh, that Dickens wrote. The one letter is to his son, mm-hmm. and this kind of. I think plays off with what I just read. As Dickens is writing to his son, he says, uh, I put a New Testament among your books for the very same reasons and with the very same hopes that made me write an easy account of it for you when you were a little child. And that's, he's referring to uh, this book. Right. Yeah. Uh, He says, because it is the best book that ever was or will be known in the world. uh, And because it teaches you the best lessons by which any human creature who tries to be truthful and faithful to duty can can possibly be guided. Uh, as your brothers have gone away one by one, I have written to each such words as I am writing, as I am now writing to you, and have entreated them all to guide themselves by this book, putting aside the interpretations and inventions of man. And that's just a little a paragraph out of that letter, but I found that interesting that it connects back to this, the life of our Lord. Yes. Yes. That is a very interesting. <laughs> it's yeah. like it, it pops up again here in this letter. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you see, see uh, sort of like a, an interfamily dialogue taking place about it, which is really cool. Yeah. Like this wasn't just a, you know, one-time thing that he wrote and forgot about that. Maybe this was something he used to, to teach his kids about, uh, about Christ or uh, about thing you know, things of God. Mm-hmm. I think the other letter too that uh, this is his final letter that he wrote uh, is the day before he died, and I, I'm really grateful somebody decided to hold on to that. <laughs> oh gosh, yes! <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've read in a couple of biographies. He would tell people, "Burn all my letters I've sent you. Don't save any copies. They're private." <laughs> Yeah. You know, I'm glad. And, nobody... and of course, people did not listen as they right. tend not to. And uh, right. we're, we're fortunate that they didn't. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But uh, he says there he's writing to, a, a, I think it was a reader who had written in. Uh, but he says that I have always striven in my writings to express veneration for the life and lessons of our Savior because I, I feel it and because I rewrote that history for my children, every one of whom knew it from having it repeated to them long before they could read 
and almost as soon as they could speak. That's really neat. Again, I think he's referencing that book. Uh, and this, so let's see, these two letters were, well, I'm not sure what the year was on that first one, but uh, it was it was probably some years before that, before the 1870. But uh, in any case, um, let's see, yeah, it was when uh, Edward was emigrating to Australia. That would have been quite a few years before he passed. Uh, but again, I, I just thought it was interesting. The book pops up again. Mm-hmm. These were themes that appear in his book that very much were a part of his life that he, you know, he believed and, and he expressed that in his actions, not always perfectly, but he, he did a lot of good for people who were in poverty and, and, uh, you know, he, he did work with, uh, uh, women who were, you know, prostitutes and got them off the streets. And um, I know he had a for a short time, uh, and I forget the lady's name he worked with, but uh, they got a house, like a house set up so that they could learn trades and, and jobs and things. And uh, he, he did a lot of, lot of help uh, for folks uh, who were in need. So he certainly practiced what he preached. <laughs> Well, let's let's go ahead and uh, got a little bit of time here left. Let's switch gears a little bit and and talk about a tale of two cities. For those of you who haven't read it, oh, what are you waiting for? <laughs> <laughs> I okay. couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, if you haven't read it, pause this, go and read it. <laughs> I'm gonna spoil the ending a little bit, but that what a powerful story that that book is. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know your your impressions of it, but you know when I read that, I. To me, it's almost like all of these views he's had, he kind of has put it into a story. Uh, especially, well, mostly for like this, his views of redemption and um, and resurrection. Uh, you know that that it's 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 really kind of a I don't know an adult story for uh, those things that he was trying to teach his kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what what are your I guess summarize uh, if you can what are what are your thoughts on on the story and, and perhaps that that religious message he's trying to get across well it's really fascinating when you look at it i mean if ever there were a novel that was saturated with the theme of resurrection a tale mm. of two cities is it mm-hmm. i mean it's everywhere it, it's from the very beginning um that you um you start after he does some sort of, um, you know, what they call in the movies establishing shots, <laughs> where yeah. he sort of introduces the period he's writing about with that famous, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, etc. The first strand of the story, the first plot line we get is about Dr. Manette, a Frenchman who was imprisoned in the Bastille for mm-hmm. many years. And... Um, somebody is going to recall him to life that mm-hmm. that's the that's the uh, wording dickens uses recalled to life so there's your first intimation of that and then uh you get this sort of like comic grotesque storyline about jerry cruncher who is a resurrection man <laughs> which mm-hmm. which in that case means he digs up bodies to sell to medical students so you have that little gruesome version of the theme and then um, as you go on through the book, that resurrection theme, again, will show up in a, in a far nobler and uh, heroic sort of light. So, so it's like everywhere. I, I mean, mm-hmm. it shows you just how important that idea was to Dickens, how it, it permeated his thoughts, uh, his ideas. And um, 
so, so the story, I mean, there, there's a very strong thread running all the way through it of, um, of love, sacrifice, redemption, um, all, all these inherently Christian ideas. Um, and, and uh, of course, as I said, the resurrection theme is just everywhere. So, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, sometimes it's just really explicit. The, the whole, I mean, you have Sidney Carton, who is sort of the anti-hero turned hero um, in a very memorable scene reflecting on the idea on the, the verse, I am the resurrection and the life. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I don't know how you could possibly read this book and not just feel um, like you're, you're swimming in a sea of Christian thought, <laughs> ideas, um, themes, just, yeah. it, it, it's just everywhere. Yeah. And, and it's, 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 it's with his storyteller's gift, he weaves it into something really wonderful. I mean, we're, we're not talking about, we're not talking about him being preachy about writing what we'd call a message book. It's not mm-hmm. like that. First and foremost, he's telling a story, but all these things are just a part of the story in such a way that it just, it just makes the story. Like comparing the two, the life of our Lord with a tale of two cities, which I, I don't know if you can compare them, but uh, mm-hmm. I, and I've been thinking about both of them and you know, the life of our Lord, I think is maybe more of that, that preachy message kind of thing and, and not that that's bad i mean right it, it's a whole different genre yeah it, it, it's it's written uh for instructional purposes right right which which was something the victorians like to do yes um, yeah. <laughs> you know they love to tell a story with a uh, of a kid and the a moral lesson they learn and <laughs> and then here i'll give you this gift as a as a christmas present a book that tells you how to be a good kid <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> oh, i've come across quite a few of those stories looking for uh good Christmas stories to read but uh mm-hmm. but yeah then with with uh you know with the, like you said with the tale of two cities he takes those themes and he just weaves them into a uh, a story of of redemption and hope which it's a pretty dark book but that that hope of resurrection at the end you know again spoiler alert here but yes uh, <laughs> what what Sydney does uh that gives it's like he has a new, uh, I don't know, he finds redemption. Those, those, I mean, he's just so tormented through this book. And then at the end, it, it's almost like this, this visible weight has been lifted from him that he has found a purpose and he's able to do something good. Uh, and he uh, gives his life for, you know, for others in quite the way that, well, similar way that Christ did. I wanted to read uh, your, your note here on, uh, from, from the section uh, in, in your book. Uh, I'm just really plugging your book today. I hope you don't mind. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it says, but you wrote there that uh, like many other authors before and since, Dickens sometimes used a Christ figure, a character whose sacrificial attitude and actions mirror those of Jesus in his works. But in creating the Christ figure of Sidney Carton, who ultimately acts heroically to save the Darnay family, Uh, from the brutality of the French Revolution, Dickens gave the formula a twist. He created a Christ figure who was himself desperately in need of redemption. Uh, Before he saves others, Carton must himself be saved. And that kind of of blew my mind, to be honest. Uh, (laughs) I've read the book, I don't know, two or three times. And and I what I love about 
any classic literature is when you can read it and get more and more out of it each time. Yes. Um, but I, I don't know if I had, like, I, I, I saw Sydney as that, you know, that Christ figure, but that, I don't know, he just added some dimension to that for me. He's quite the unlikely hero that he, you know, saved someone, but he was in need of salvation himself, you know, desperately. Yeah. And he and he found that. That's, I mean, that just, for me, has made that story all the more powerful. That that passage I referred to earlier of, of him thinking about the, the verse, I am the resurrection and the life. And mm-hmm. it, so, so um, I mean, he, he act, he doesn't just use a Christ figure here. He's actually pointing to Christ himself because, and, and, and for a Christian, that is, that is just so authentically based on the gospel message is that we, we are to act like Christ. And yet none of us is really like Christ. None of us is that good. <laughs> That's why we need to be saved in the first place. Right. So, so there's the whole intertwining of, um, you know, where we we have to follow Christ, but we still need Christ to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And, and it's really a very clear picture here, which I find really, really interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then at the, uh, you know, at the end of the story, uh, it, it ends with those classic lines. You know, it's a far, far better thing that I do uh, than I have ever done. But before that, he has like this, Sydney has this vision of the future, perhaps. And uh you know, it's one of, of hope and one of life. He sees them safe and prospering and, and happy. And so, uh, and like you point out here, it's it's that that hopeful vision in the spite of, in, in the midst of all this death. You, you know, he's, he's going to the gallows. He's going to have his head removed. There's probably blood everywhere and gore and all, mm-hmm. and all this. But in the middle of all that, there, there, there's just bright shining light in this hope in this uh this amazing story mm-hmm. uh, it's it's incredible yeah yeah and, and faith and hope have to be very strong to overcome uh, all that that picture of the violence the gore all that going on um i mean this is this is no timid faith here <laughs> i mean yeah. to, have, to have hope and to have light at such a moment i mean that that's that really speaks to the power of faith the power of god i was wondering like maybe with that that dickens is perhaps implying this is what life could look like if we all just did what we were supposed to, you know, if we all mm-hmm. were kind or, or good, mm-hmm. uh, we could, we can make this a better place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could, we could bring safety and peace to, to where it's needed. Yeah. I don't know about, you know, on your, your side of things, but you know, over here in the Midwest, we, we've had a, a raucous year, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, turmoil, a lot of heartache, a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Um, it's, it's been a hard, hard year. I, I think this is a message that is, is, you know, not just a message of Christ, but you know, that message of doing good, of acting on your faith. I think it's a message we need, uh, our world needs right now. Yeah. It's so interesting that, um, the end of this book, doesn't really show us the end of the the revolution and the violence themselves. I mean, Sydney mm-hmm. sort of has a vision of of uh, a future beyond them, but but we don't actually see it. What we see uh, concretely happening is one individual act of love and 
sacrifice and goodness. Uh, but Dickens, and especially later in his life and career, was very much focused on the power of an individual act. Uh, he had sort of gotten disillusioned with institutions <laughs> and, yeah. you know, they took forever to change. They, they uh, even if they did change, sometimes it wasn't very much. Uh, he he kind of had had it with them, but, but he still believed in the power of, of individuals to do good. And, um, and, and he believed, he believed in the power of an individual act because if there are enough of them, then things really do start to change. Uh, he, it, it's, um, kind of uh, intriguing how he also, you know, in the buildup to the revolution, you know, earlier on in the book, there too, he sort of focuses on, you know, one family, one, one uh, group of victims, one act of injustice that leads to another one. And, and so the implication is sort of that all over France, all these millions of injustices were going on that mm. sort of snowballed into what would become the revolution of the people rebelling and, and striking back. Um, I mean, he's very much focused on that, but, but again, he, he wants to show us the power of one individual act in this case, um, again, spoiler alert. He, he talks, he talks about the, that there's, there are these two brothers committing rape and murder uh, in this, against the peasants on their estate and and then um imprisoning the doctor who tries to do something about it so um again the individual act so so you sort of get a parallel at the near the beginning well not so near the beginning but but earlier in the book you get you got this act of injustice that was sort of uh representative of all the injustices that led to the revolution and then at the end of the book you get this one individual act of love and sacrifice that helped save uh potential victims of the revolution so um that's just very much a force in his thinking you know uh, we society is enormous it's full of injustices we can't necessarily change that but we can do what it's in our power to do um, and if we use that power for evil, you know, that's going to lead to, to uh, terrible consequences. If we use that power for good, then there's reason to hope that um, things will get better. Just thinking about all that's going on right now with movements and different, you know, protests and different this and that. Um, what, what a timely reminder. <laughs> we, we can make a difference and it might just be a small thing, but we can make that difference. So I, I guess I tr try to wrap all this up here. We, we've had thoughts all over the place, but mm -hmm. um, if, if, if Dickens had a message for uh, for us today, uh, what do you think that might be? Well, I think it sort of ties into what we've just been saying um, and, and what, what you sort of were, were talking about with um, such bitter divisions in our society um, mm. and, and um, so much injustice and, you know, people being angry at each other, hating each other. And um, I, I, I think there's really a deep hunger for justice, but sometimes a despair of ever getting it. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes, you know, just just lashing out, wanting to punish. You, you, you get all these sorts of things uh, going on. And, and it's very reflective of what Dickens wrote about in A Tale of Two Cities, these cycles of violence where... Um, um, injustice leads to hate and anger and 
and then those lead to more injustices in turn and you just get this that without without love grace and forgiveness and and positive actions to try to to build a better society you get this cycle of revenge and violence and hatred that just goes down through the generations and i think i, I think dickens is calling us um if you'll pardon the cliche to, to be part of the solution and not part of the problem and, yeah. and sometimes sometimes that's uh, in your in your own individual capacity that's the best you can do is just try to be to step away from the cycle of violence and hatred and try to be part of something better try to try to do good um be aware of injustices and um you know call attention to them and 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 try to take positive action and try to demonstrate love and healing um in all the ways that you can i, I and if, if if enough people do are willing to do that and to make those sorts of um sacrifices and to show that kind of love um then then uh, things can change. i had heard just heard today uh, i was listening to another podcast and this was from a couple of years ago now but they were talking about um i i think it was i think they were chinese believers but i'm not sure now it might have been a different they were talking about a bunch of persecuted christians Mm -hmm. and this one church had its leaders arrested and in response to that the couple of the members of the church rather than lashing out went to the police station and started doing kind things for the police officers oh my gosh and and they were singing hymns and and just being kind to them um holding signs that said you know we don't bear any grudge or anything um that's like a the ultimate peaceful protest i guess yeah it's amazing i i was really challenged by that like you know here we we like to complain here in the united states you know oh i gotta wear a mask or oh i gotta do this or that but (laughs) yeah you know there are people losing their lives and being unfairly arrested and uh and their response to that was not to strike out but to 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 respond with kindness and i don't know like what kind of an impact that had on, on them, um, on me, I thought, man, that's, that's a challenging, <laughs> that's a challenging thought. Wow. Immensely challenging. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I would have responded quite that way. <laughs> I don't know if <laughs> but, I would have either. Yeah. But it was, gave me, gave me food for thought. And then I read this, uh, I'll, I'll just read this little section here from the life of our Lord again. Uh, towards the end, he says, Remember, it is Christianity to do good always, even to those who do evil to us. Um, and, and I think that's that's such a profound statement. I mean, it's it's a biblical statement, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes hearing it in a different context or in a different way uh, can can really drive home a point uh, that maybe we need to learn. All right. Well, we better wrap this up, or we're gonna. This episode's going to be super long. <laughs> I guess before we go, is there uh, anything you're up to that you'd like to to plug or make folks aware of? Well, um, you've you've uh, been very kindly talking up my book, The Gospel and Dickens. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yep. Um, of course, I have uh, Dickens blog, which is just dickensblogtypepad.com. 
for all lovers of Dickens or people who just want to learn more. Um, and I recently started uh, a book review newsletter, which I put out every two weeks. And it's just called Dear Strange Things, which is a quote from Dorothy Parker, who's another favorite uh, writer of mine. Mm-hmm. So that's at uh, dearstrangethings.substack.com. And I just uh, basically review all kinds of books, you know, whatever happens to take my fancy uh, that week. So um, uh, just getting that underway and uh, email subscriptions are free. So I'd love to have more subscribers. All right. Well, I, I don't know if I knew that, so I'll, I'll have to make sure I subscribe. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll, I'll have uh, those links and things in our show notes so folks okay. can come and come and find you. And, um, but yeah, uh, as I know I mentioned this before, but the, the Dickens blog is a great place. Uh, you, you post things about uh, different movie adaptations and, mm-hmm. and books and interviews and just little tidbits here and there that Dickens fans find, can find interesting. So uh, that's worth checking out there. Um, all right. Well, Gina, thanks for stopping by the uh, the temporarily renamed Cozy Easter podcast. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much. For our story time today, I'll be finishing reading chapter 11 from The Life of Our Lord by Charles Dickens. And this is going to focus on the events of his resurrection and then some concluding thoughts by Dickens. I just want to thank uh, those of you who have bear with me through uh, reading of these stories. I know they're, uh, they haven't been very Christmassy, maybe not the coziest story, but it's a story that's important to why I personally celebrate Christmas uh, and Easter. So I I appreciate you all sticking with me through this, and I hope you enjoy this story. The next day being the Sabbath, the Jews were anxious that the bodies should be taken down at once and made that request to Pilate. Therefore some soldiers came and broke the legs of the two criminals to kill them. But coming to Jesus, and finding him already dead, they only pierced his side with a spear. From the wound there came out blood and water. There was a good man named Joseph of Arimathea, a Jewish city, who believed in Christ, and going to Pilate privately, for fear of the Jews, begged that he might have the body. Pilate consenting, he and one Nicodemus rolled it in linen and spices. It was the custom of the Jews to prepare bodies for burial in that way, and buried it in a new tomb or sepulcher, which had been cut out of a rock in a garden near to the place of crucifixion, and where no one had ever yet been buried. They then rolled a great stone to the mouth of the sepulcher, and left Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting there watching it. The chief priests and Pharisees, remembering that Jesus Christ had said to his disciples that he would rise from the grave on the third day after his death, went to Pilate and prayed that the sepulcher might be well taken care of until that day, lest the disciples should steal the body and afterwards say to the people that Christ was risen from the dead. Pilate agreeing to this, a guard of soldiers was set over it constantly, and the stone was sealed up besides, and so it remained, watched and sealed until the third day, which was the first day of the week. When the morning began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and some other women came to the sepulchre 
with some more spices which they had prepared. As they were saying to each other, How shall we roll away the stone? The earth trembled and shook, and an angel descending from heaven rolled it back and then sat resting on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his garments were white as snow. And at sight of him, the men of the guard fainted away with fear as if they were dead. Mary Magdalene saw the stone rolled away, and waiting to see no more, ran to Peter and John, who were coming towards the place, and said, They have taken away the Lord, and we know not where they have laid him. They immediately ran to the tomb, but John, being the faster of the two, outran the other and got there first. He stooped down and looked in and saw the linen clothes in which the body had been wrapped, lying there. But he did not go in. When Peter came up, he went in and saw the linen clothes lying in one place, and a napkin that had been bound about the head in another. John also went in, then, and saw the same things. Then they went home to tell the rest. But Mary Magdalene remained outside the sepulcher, weeping. After a little time, she stooped down and looked in, and saw two angels clothed in white, sitting where the body of Christ had lain. These said to her, Woman, why weepest thou? She answered, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. As she gave this answer, she turned round and saw Jesus standing behind her, but did not then know him. Woman, said he, why weepest thou? What seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, replied, Sir, if thou hast borne my Lord hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus pronounced her name, Mary. Then she knew him, and starting, exclaimed, Master! Touch me not, said Christ, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my disciples, and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father, and your Father, and to my God, and to your God. Accordingly, Mary Magdalene went and told the disciples that she had seen Christ, and what he had said to her. And with them she found the other women, whom she had left at the sepulchre when she had gone to call those two disciples, Peter and John. These women told her and the rest that they had seen at the tomb two men in shining garments, at sight of whom they had been afraid and had bent down, but who had told them that the Lord was risen, and also that, as they came to tell this, they had seen Christ on the way, and had held him by the feet and worshipped him. But these accounts seemed to the apostles at the time as idle tales, and they did not believe them. The soldiers of the guard, too, when they recovered from their fainting fit, and went to the chief priests to tell them what they had seen, were silenced with large sums of money, and were told by them to say that the disciples had stolen the body away while they were asleep. But it happened that on that same day, Simon and Cleopas, Simon, one of the twelve apostles, and Cleopas, one of the followers of Christ, were walking to a village called Emmaus, at some little distance from Jerusalem, and were talking, by the way, upon the death and resurrection of Christ, when they were joined by a stranger, who explained the scriptures to them, and told them a great deal about God, so that they wondered at his knowledge. As the night was fast coming on when they reached the village, they asked the stranger to stay with them, which he consented to do. When they all three sat down to supper, he took some bread and blessed it and broke it as Christ had done at the Last Supper. Looking on him in wonder, they found that his face was changed before them, 
and that it was Christ himself. And as they looked on him, he disappeared. They instantly rose up and returned to Jerusalem, and finding the disciples sitting together, told them what they had seen. While they were speaking, Jesus suddenly stood in the midst of all the company and said, Peace be unto ye. Seeing that they were greatly frightened, he showed them his hands and feet and invited them to touch him. And to encourage them and give them time to recover themselves, he ate a piece of broiled fish and a piece of honeycomb before them all. But Thomas, one of the twelve apostles, was not there at that time. And when the rest said to him afterwards, We have seen the Lord! He answered, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. At that moment, though the doors were all shut, Jesus again appeared, standing among them, and said, Peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Then said Jesus, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen me, and yet have believed. After that time, Jesus Christ was seen by five hundred of his followers at once. And he remained with others of them forty days, teaching them and instructing them to go forth into the world and preach his gospel and religion not minding what wicked men might do to them. And conducting his disciples at last out of Jerusalem as far as Bethany, he blessed them and ascended in a cloud to heaven and took his place at the right hand of God. And while they gazed into the bright blue sky where he had vanished, two white-robed angels appeared among them and told them that as they had seen Christ ascend to heaven, so he would one day come descending from it to judge the world. When Christ was seen no more, the apostles began to teach the people as he had commanded them. And having chosen a new apostle named Matthias to replace the wicked Judas, they wandered into all countries, telling the people of Christ's life and death and of his crucifixion and resurrection, and of the lessons he had taught in baptizing them in Christ's name. And through the power he had given them, they healed the sick and gave sight to the blind and speech to the dumb, and hearing to the deaf, as he had done. And Peter, being thrown into prison, was delivered from it, in the dead of night, by an angel. And once, his words before God caused a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, who had told a lie, to be struck down dead upon the earth. Wherever they went, they were persecuted and cruelly treated. And one man named Saul, who had held the clothes of some barbarous persons, who pelted one of the Christians named Stephen to death with stones, was always active in doing them harm. But God turned Saul's heart afterwards, for as he was traveling to Damascus to find out some Christians who were there and drag them to prison, there shone about him a great light from heaven. A voice cried, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he was struck down from his horse by an invisible hand in sight of all the guards and soldiers who were riding with him. When they raised him, they found that he was blind. So he remained for three days, neither eating nor drinking, until one of the Christians, sent to him by an angel for that purpose, restored his sight in the name of Jesus Christ. 
after which he became a Christian and preached and taught and believed with the apostles and did great service. They took the name of Christians from our Savior Christ and carried crosses as their sign, because upon a cross he had suffered death. The religions that were then in the world were false and brutal and encouraged men to violence. Beasts and even men were killed in the churches in the belief that the smell of their blood was pleasant to the gods. There were supposed to be a great many gods, and many most cruel and disgusting ceremonies prevailed. Yet for all this, and though the Christian religion was such a true and kind and good one, the priests of the old religions long persuaded the people to do all possible hurt to the Christians. And Christians were hanged, beheaded, burnt, buried alive, and devoured in theaters by wild beasts for the public amusement during many years. Nothing would silence them or terrify them, though. For they knew that if they did their duty, they would go to heaven. So thousands upon thousands of Christians sprung up and taught the people and were cruelly killed and were succeeded by other Christians until the religion gradually became the great religion of the world. Remember, it is Christianity to do good, always, even to those who do evil to us. It is Christianity to love our neighbors as ourself and to do to all men as we would have them do to us. It is Christianity to be gentle, merciful, and forgiving, and to keep those qualities quiet in our own hearts and never make a boast of them, or of our prayers, or of our love of God, but always to show that we love Him by humbly trying to do right in everything. If we do this and remember the life and lessons of our Lord Jesus Christ, and try to act up to them, we may confidently hope that God will forgive us our sins and mistakes and enable us to live and die in peace. I like what Dickens said, that it is Christianity to do good. As I shared a bit in the last episode, that is something I'm trying to learn especially after this last year or two, when many have, in the name of Christ, not lived up to that ideal. Charles Dickens did a lot of good. He had care for the poor. I mean, that's one of the reasons he wrote A Christmas Carol, is to try to change people's hearts concerning those who are poor. His desire was to get the wealthy to care about the plight of the poor. I say all that to say this, that there's not a one of us that is perfect. But if we claim to be a follower of God and claim to be a follower of Christ, and, and yet, let's face it, we're jerks. You know, our actions don't back up our message. And, and so I hope you are, are inspired by this story. You know, you might disagree with Dickens and his views, and there's things that he says to you that I, I disagree with, and that's fine. But as I've encouraged you before to be kind, today I want to encourage you to do good and make that difference in the world. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until we meet again, be kind to each other and do good. And remember that there is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humor. Have a very Merry Christmas.